us this morning. We want to welcome you. We're so glad you joined us today for our preaching service. We are uh, back in Genesis, so if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. We're at Genesis chapter 11, and we'll continue in our worship as we take up with all nine verses this morning. So, Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had the same language and the same words. As they journeyed east, they found the plain of Shinar and settled there and said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the, full, the, over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. So nothing, now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, after several Sundays, it's good to be finally back in Genesis and we find ourselves re-entering this post-diluvian narrative at the Tower of Babel. Babel is the last of the Genesis narrative where Yahweh's focus is universally with men and it hasn't been a good run. The failure of Adam at the fall and then the failure of man in the days of Noah, and now the failure of man at the Tower of Babel. The story of man has really revealed the poverty of the faith of man, which when he's left to his own devices. But following this dispersion from the plains of Shinar, Yahweh will soon raise up a man of faith, a man that would carry the precious, carry the, the nation. And the nation would carry the precious seed of God and would carry the precious word of God. So Abram is coming, and he's coming with a faith that would not fail as it does here at Babel. To many, the Tower of Babel, like Noah's flood, falls into the category of a quaint story that conjures up images of comic book illustrations and children's books and and wall posters. And I really hope to puncture that caricature, caricature this morning. Because the real story of the Tower of Babel and its ramifications are arguably of equal importance to that of the Great Flood. And once you start to pull the thread that is the Tower of Babel, to truly understand it, you end up being pulled in even further than you imagined. Sure, you have in the Tower of Babel narrative familiar and incredibly strong themes of man's determined rebellion against Yahweh, and Yahweh's active sovereignty over man. But you also find truths that end up informing your views on issues such as how the languages developed and how the so-called races developed. 
And even how this ongoing threat of an anti-God new world order, how that got started. But before we get into all that, let's begin with the lead up to Babel. And then we're going to look at the leaven of Babel. Then we're going to look at the leaving of Babel. And then we're going to look at the lessons of Babel. So if the first point in your outline, the lead up to Babel, we need to get our bearings here, where we're at in the Genesis narrative. And that means we have to go back to Noah, where we find Yahweh's reset with mankind after the flood, with Yahweh showing His grace and mercy to Noah and his family. In the face of the coming worldwide flood, upon the wicked world. We remember back in chapter 6 when Moses recorded, he said, For Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yet Noah and his family were spared. Why? Because Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And then moving ahead to chapter 9, it reads, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that commandment becomes critical to the rebellion that happens in chapter 11. Now the first observation that needs to be addressed is the hiccup in the sequence of events, particularly between the end of the flood with the eight people leaving the ark and then 100 to 150 years later with the population that enters into Babel. The discrepancy comes when we see that the dispersion of the people of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth has already been described before we get to chapter 11. First, we see the dispersion in chapter 9. It reads, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was scattered abroad. And specifically, we see the scattering of the sons of Japheth in chapter 10 it reads from these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands every one according to his tongue according to their families into their nations then we see the scattering of the sons of Ham these are the sons of Ham according to their families according to their tongues by their nations and by by their lands and by their nations and then we see Shem the scattering of the sons of Shem these are the sons of Shem according to their families according to their tongues, by their lands, according to their nations. And then it concludes in, in chapter 10 there. It says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by the nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So clearly we see what? We see a scattering of languages and people groups to different lands. So how is it when we get to our very next verse in the section that starts the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, it begins with, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. Well, the explanation is simple. In chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, it's explaining in detail what had already happened in chapters 9 and 10. So it does not follow chronologically, but rather it's giving us the details of the dispersion that already occurred. The second observation from the chapters preceding chapter 11 is we see in chapter 10 a significant time marker. Concerning a descendant of Shem, it reads, now, the, now two sons were born to Eber. The name was, of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Chok Joktan. Interesting, Peleg, which means division, was the name of this particular descendant. And here we find that Peleg was a living witness to the great event at Babel. 
It reads, for in his days the earth was divided. This wasn't geological having to do with the actual earth being divided from the flood. How do we know that? Because the entire context of Genesis 10 makes it clear. This had to do with the dividing of the tongues and peoples into different lands. So we can conclude that Peleg had settled down with, with his family in Babel and then was scattered from Babel with his family. Now let's make some observations about the geography of this part of the world leading up to Babel. After the floods receded, Noah and his family traveled southwest from the mountains of Ararat, which, is now, which, which today is in the eastern edge of Turkey. And they actually made their way to the land of Shinar, which is in northern Mesopotamia, which is located in northeastern Iraq, northwestern, uh, northeastern Syria, northwestern Iraq, and it's not far from the, the border with Turkey. And as the crow flies, Shinar is about 400 miles from the mountains of Ararat. As the crow, as the crow flies, it's, it's situated in this well-watered area known as the Fertile Crescent that benefited from being between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's also called the Kaber Triangle. Now realize that this is far north of the ancient city of Babylon, which is located about 700 miles south in southern Mesopotamia, closer to Baghdad. And even today, commentators are split on the location of Babel in the plain of Shinar. But I tend to agree with the case made for this northern location based on the post-flood assumptions made by answers in Genesis. Their reasoning is that since the lower locations considered are at a much lower elevation, it's unlikely that within 100 to 150 years, after the flood, that the water would have sufficiently receded to make that area inhabitable. The Kaber region to the north is much higher in elevation, much more likely to be fertile, much more likely to be inhabitable. Now, of course, the families, the number of families that enter the land of Shinar had grown dramatically at this point, given the number of generations that were born from the eight original survivors. Some commentators factor the number entering Babel as high as 30,000, and some as low as only 1,000. While their exact population is unclear, what is clear is they all spoke the same language, and that leads us to verse 1 and 2. And it reads, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, you may be wondering, how is it they travel east to the plain of Shinar when they had to travel so far southwest from the mountains of Ararat? Well, the best explanation is in their traveling, in their wandering, they traveled further west and then traveled south. And as they were moving back east, they came upon this plain, the plain of Shinar. Now, as to their linguistic unity, having the same language, Moses' words literally translate that the whole world was of one lip. I mean, this makes sense that they would all have the same language. I mean, everyone that landed at Babel descended from the one fountainhead of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, just as we all here today, and by the way, the, the entire world population, all descended from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So they all spoke the same language when they journeyed east to Shinar. So far, so good. But then they settled there. Big mistake. And that leads us to point two in your outline, the leaven of Babel. 
These sojourners from the ark had one commandment. They had one job that they should have been laser focused on doing. And that was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they had not yet separated when they settled. When they figuratively dropped anchor in Shinar. And it became clear they had no intention of separating and filling the earth. And so the rebellion begins. A rebellion that starts because it's comfortable, it's secure, it's easy to stay together. But that's not what Yahweh commanded, was it? It doesn't sound like outright rebellion, but it is. And that's the subtleness of sin. It creeps in preying upon our comfort until it gains just a tiny foothold, but it never ends there. Sin needed just a tiny foothold in that settlement in Shinar, which would grow to become a base camp for greater rebellion and greater sin. And that leads us to verses 3 and 4. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for motor. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So not only were their heels of rebellion digging in, but now they're pounding their chest, they're holding their fist to God, and they're saying, fruitful and fill the earth. No way. No way. We are here, and we're here to stay. Unless there be any doubt, we're going to build a city, we're going to build a tower. It's going to reach into heaven to make our name known. At the root of rebellion is pride the mother of all sin. Sin birthed at the tragic fall in Genesis 3, leading to sins so foul that Yahweh would have to drown the earth, all but the eight. But that foul sin virus was still there, stronger than ever, rearing its head in the plain of Shinar. You see, fallen man's trajectory for self-destruction is relentless. With the earth still healing, from the scars of the great flood, and yet here we go again. Why is this? Because the heart of man is only evil continually. And Noah's family that survived the flood, they were no exception. Their hearts were not washed clean by the flood waters. They were no better after the flood than before the flood. And clearly the leaven of sin has spread to their progeny at Babel. This is made evident by their declaration to make a name not for Yahweh, but for themselves. Instead of relying on Yahweh for His provision, instead of raising their voice in praise to Yahweh, instead they raise their voices in praise to themselves. And the only thing they raise is their own estimation of themselves. And like the leaven that raises the bread, it is sin that raises the heart in pride puffing itself up, aiming to make a name for itself. This building a tower was ripe for symbolism, symbolism of their pride. And how would they build these monuments to themselves? With bricks. For unlike the future city of God, Jerusalem, which is basically all stones, because Jerusalem was built on stones and the city was built of huge stones, the plain of Shinar had no stones. And that leads us to verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. Now some might say, what's wrong with bricks? It was good enough to build Lakewood Bible Chapel in 1950. 
Well, there's nothing wrong with bricks per se, but it's what bricks represent in Scripture. You see, bricks have interesting qualities. First, bricks are not natural. They're artificial. They are made by man, not by God. Second, they're identical and uniform. They're not unique. Fourth, they are fragile. And even worse for Babel would be if each brick was stamped with their ruler's name, Nimrod, just as the bricks were stamped by Nebuchadnezzar and later Saddam Hussein for their massive monuments to themselves just to the south in Babylon. Bricks were the perfect symbol for these godless occupants of these cities. But Yahweh's temple, the church, has always been made not of bricks, but of living stones formed and led by Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. First Peter speaks of the living stones coming to Christ. He said, And coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, living stones have unique qualities. First, we are not just natural. We are supernatural. Secondly, we are utterly unique. No two stones are alike. Third, we are irreplaceable. We are not interchangeable. Fourth, we are precious, but we're not fragile. And instead of being a stamp brick with a human name externally, believers are stamped stones with the Holy Spirit, making us alive, God in Himself indwelling us internally. The bricks made by and owned by man are destined to eventually be crumbled down back to earth. The stones created by and owned by God are destined to be resurrected up to heaven. Now let's look again at verse 4. And we're going to see it wasn't just a name for themselves that they were after. It reads, And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, there are two great sins here in verse 4 in the four desires that are stated. Number one, they desire to build a city. Number two, they desire to build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Number three, they desire to make a name for themselves. And number four, they desire not to be scattered over the face of the earth. The first two desires are how they accomplish the second two. Building a city will keep them planted, number one, so they won't be scattered, number four. And building a tower that will reach into heaven, number two, will make a great name for themselves that all can see far and wide, number three. Instead of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in their rebellion, they respond motivated by pride and security by settling down, building a city and a tower revealing their lack of faith in God to keep them safe and revealing their prideful desire to exalt themselves. I mean, we get this, don't we? We all want to be safe and secure. And there's not one among us that doesn't crave human praise, but we must be aware of the things that God detests in man. For security and safety can be an idol, revealing our lack of trust in God. And the praise of men, self-exaltation, is making ourselves as God, which is detestable to Him. Just as Christ told the Pharisees in Luke 16, it reads, And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men 
is detestable in the sight of God. You might be thinking, man, you're being kind of tough on them. Yeah, they should have been settling, they should have been multiplying and filling the earth. And they're just building a city and tower. What's wrong with that? Well, it, it was more than just a city and tower. What they were building was a large religious complex, like so many that followed in Mesopotamia. The tower is widely believed to be a ziggurat, which means gate of the gods. The ziggurat was described by Herodotus, a Greek historian, as a wonder of the world. The whole complex was dominated by this massive ziggurat that took the form of a stepped pyramid. Ziggurats were designed so the gods would come down to the temple and they would enter into the city bringing blessings to it. The inside of the ziggurat was solid with no internal use, so access to the top would be through the step pyramids on the outside. And although Baba was the first ever ziggurat, it did serve as the architectural model of future pagan religious structures that are all over the world, throughout modern-day Iraq and Iran and even Mexico, like the Mayans of Chichen Itza in the Yucatan, or even the Pyramid of the Sun outside Mexico City, now, a couple observations as we consider the hubris of the people of Babel wanting to build a tower that will reach the heavens. First, actually reaching heaven is hyperbolic, meaning it is meant to be exaggerated. Second, I don't think they were motivated to stay above any future floodwaters. Surely they knew from the eyewitness accounts passed down from Noah's son of the utter futility of such an endeavor. Third, just think of the folly of their request. In the face of the God of the universe. They think this structure is going to invade heaven and impress God. Who hung, the God who hung the Pleiades. The God who hung the solar system. The God who hung, hangs entire galaxies in orbit. You know, if they had a telescope, they couldn't see a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the universe. It's so vast. So we have to grasp the absurdity of their arrogance on display as we come to verse 5. It reads, Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. So the all-knowing omniscient, the all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipotent, sovereign Yahweh who sees into every tiny corner of the universe has come down anthropomorphically to inspect something so relatively dinky and insignificant, but also something so offensive. Because we can also sense a cosmic shaking of the head of Yahweh, as if to say, here they go again. Which explains the sober analysis of the inspection in, in verse 6. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they've begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Yahweh recognizes mankind as one people with one language, striving and working together to do what? To bring heaven down to earth, thus making Babel the first ever recorded organized religion with the exaltation of man as their focus. They turned from relying on Yahweh and they turned from exalting Yahweh and now they would only rely on themselves and they would only exalt themselves. They might as well have built a huge billboard on the top of that ziggurat that said, We are Babel, 
we are awesome. Right? They're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which would require faith. It would require reliance upon Yahweh every step of the way as they journeyed. But by hunkering down and starting their own religion of self-worship, Babel reveals first that man was made by God to worship, but second, if they're not worshiping God, guess who they're going to worship? Themselves. It's no longer thy will be done, it becomes my will be done. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And all that they accomplish with the building of the city and the tower, apart from God, would be on their terms. Isn't this emblematic of so much of man-centered religion today, which is disguised as worshiping God, but ultimately is worshiping man? The cults are obvious that do this, but even within evangelicalism, we see this. Proud denominations and megachurches marketing and branding themselves to the world. There's a huge church here in Denver. The name of their church is actually not the attributes of God, but their name is based on the attributes of man. It's very man-centered. They're saying, we are this denomination, we are this church, and the next thing you know, there's t-shirts and there's bumper stickers and there's coffee mugs. And what's really being communicated? What is really being marketed? Is it their love of God or their love of self and their church and their name? In Babel, it took them no time to turn from God's purpose to man's purpose. And they said, we will stay, we will build our way to heaven, and we will make our name known. By our own hands, we will be exalted. The Puritan William Gernal once wrote, if pride be at the beginning of a duty, shame will be at the end of it. You see, Yahweh knew where they were headed, so He stops them before they can get started. And so the response of Yahweh in verse 7.3 of your outline is the leaving of Babel. It reads, Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language. So they will not understand one another's language. First observation is this action against Babel is the collective action of the Godhead. The plurality is clear with the use of the term Elohim, which is in the plural. It says, come, let us go down. This is the Trinity acting, just as we've seen the Trinity acting in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And the Trinitarian response to the sin of man in Genesis 3, then Yahweh said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. The second observation is the decision of Yahweh is not annihilation for the masses, but rather grace, just as with Noah and his family. But it wouldn't be easy, just as it was with Noah and his family. Noah and his family had to endure riding out the great flood and starting over. The people of Babel would have to endure the confusion and the exodus from Babel and start over themselves. The third observation is the direction of Yahweh to go down to address this sin. When the people of Babel desired to go up to heaven, the people of Babel said, let us go up. Yahweh said, let us go down. The verdict from the Godhead, verse 8, so Yahweh scattered them from Babel over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Yahweh confused their speech. He scattered the families. And the result, the building of the city and the ziggurat temple were halted. In a moment, their pride in their monument to themselves, gone. Their security huddling together, independent of God, 
gone. And, and third, their organized religion, gone. All stripped from them before they could get the worship center completed. One can only imagine the workers who showed up to the job site that morning, realizing that communication was simple, that was simple the day before, was now impossible. Impossible and beyond frustrating. To the point there was no hope, not only in finishing the project, there was no hope in staying together as a people. Let me give you an illustration to help you get a sense of the chaos here. At the London, London's Tate Modern Art Gallery, there was displayed years ago a giant tower created by a Brazilian artist. It was made out of hundreds of radios. And they were all tuned to different stations playing at once, thus creating a maddening cacophony of confusing, indecipherable speech. Surely no one could stand long before that racket of noise. And that gives us a sense of the frustration and babble among the former co-workers and friends. They could no longer communicate with one another, thus fracturing their unity and breaking them up into various tribes and various dialects. It was thought that although the dialects were different amongst the people, they remained the same within the tribes, within the family groups. Now, it must be said this was surely a supernatural event because these were real languages, real languages that would be the basis of all the major language groups of the table of nations that spread out according to their families, according to their tongues, by their lands, and by their nations, thus making possible the multiplying and filling of the earth and eventually metastasizing into 7,000 languages that we have today. Now, we'll talk more about that later, but it was in this way that God's purpose was accomplished. In spite of the arrogance and defiance shown by the people of Babel, Yahweh resists the proud, and he scatters Babel like stomping on a campfire on a windy day, sending the embers, the tribes, out from Babel to populate the earth. And that leads us to verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language and of the whole earth. And there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now verse 9 here concludes a section of the Tower of Babel explaining why it is called Babel. And of course it's due to the confusion of the languages which resulted in the dispersion of the people groups. The Hebrew etymology of the term Babel is to confuse, to mix. The English etymology is literally to babble like babbling babies. We get a lot of that here with all our babies. Babbling. Maybe we should call it Lakewood Babble Chapel. You know? Well, we better not because that will attract the charismatics. They will want to move right in. Now, before we move to point four, let me quickly point out the chiastic structure of Genesis 11. We don't talk much about chiastic structure. In Scripture, but I can't resist because this one is classic chiastic structure. Chiastic structure is sometimes called chiastic pattern. It's where two ideas are set against one another in a pattern. And a pattern in this case that forms a type of mirror of ideas that are inverted. It's kind of like looking at the reflection of a mountain off of a lake with the image inverted, right? So here in Genesis 11, verse 5 is the epicenter and around which the other eight verses break out in both directions. So the way the chiastic structure works is we start with the outside verses. Verse 1 corresponds to verse 9. Verse 2 corresponds to verse 8. 
Verse 3 corresponds to verse 7, verse 4, verse 6. And again, verse 5 is at the center. So look at this. Verse 1, man has unity in language. Verse 9, Yahweh confuses the language. Verse 2, man settles in Babel. Verse 8, Yahweh scatters them over the face of the earth. Verse 3, man says, come, let us build. Verse 7, Yahweh says, come, let us confuse. Verse 4, man says, we can do it. This is good. Verse 6, Yahweh says, they think they can do anything. This is not good. You see, verse 5 is the hinge on which the whole section turns with Yahweh coming down from heaven. I mean, this is brilliant. It's supernatural. The structure could only be produced by the Holy Spirit with this kind of continuity. And look, I know chiastic structures don't preach well, but they do magnify the sheer brilliance of our Lord here in Genesis 11. Now to point four in your outline, the lessons of Babel. First, we'll look at the macro effects of God's active scattering of the people of Babel, the effects of which are so consequential. They affect how we speak today, our language, and even how we look today, our physical features, and even how we ended up here in our current location in North America. This was all set in motion by what happened in a little Mesopotamian outpost in the Kaber region, in the Fertile Crescent, some 4,200 years ago. The first lesson from Babel is how our languages were affected by the Tower of Babel dispersion. Many languages which are represented just within our body this morning, there are at least 78 root language families that came out of Babel. And they're detailed in the Table of Nations and Genesis 10 that gives a listing of most of them. But it's from these 78 that give rise to all our varied languages today. For example, German, English, Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, and Austrian are all part of one language family. Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, Portuguese, and Romanian are all part of another language family. All 7,000 languages in our world today fit into one of these root language families. Language groups that split into other languages and even more languages that further developed when people groups isolated themselves and adapted into local specialized dialects. And yet they all originated. They all originated from the dispersion of the peoples and the languages from Babel. This flies in the face of evolutionary ideas of language development. Now that's not surprising, is it? I mean, they can't even explain why humans speak and animals don't. They can't explain why you can take a gorilla from one part of the world and pair it with a gorilla from another part of the world and they can communicate. And yet humans who are intellectually superior, we have so many languages, we shut down communication. The second lesson from Babel is it wasn't just the languages that spread out, but of course the people groups with those languages that spread out. Yet all people groups are still descended from one human race. From the sons of Noah. From Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we truly are one race. We truly are all brothers and sisters. But understand, there are not races. There's only one human race. There should not be a great revelation for Christians. The Apostle Paul preached on this at the Areopagus in Athens. In the book of Acts, it reads, and he, this is Paul speaking, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, 
having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So don't waste your money on Ancestry.com or 20andMe where you spit in a tube and you send it off. Don't waste your money on it because we all go back to the boat. We all go back to Noah's family. So why do we have so many variations in physical characteristics? Was well, possible that Noah and Noah's wife could have had varied physical characteristics from each other? Or the three wives had varied physical characteristics? Or it could be that the gene pool for each specific group shrank dramatically after the dispersion when they no longer had the entire population to mix with. So closer inbreeding could have taken place with certain features emerging over time that emphasize certain characteristics of the gene pool. Then as future generations are born, the gene pool grows smaller and smaller to the point that all the people of that group had the same or similar characteristics. Another possibility is that just as God supernaturally created the different languages coming out of Babel, He could have, through the use of the gene pool that He created, supernaturally created offspring that varied in physical characteristics as well, depending on where they were migrating. The point is this. First, God is sovereign over all of this. And second, this has nothing to do with race, but variations of the one race. But even the one point, our skin color, that seems to be the dividing point for those who want to divide us, is only a matter of how much melanin we have in our skin. We're all just different shades of brown. And I think it's probably true that the three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they had melanin right in the middle of the color palette, like so many of our medium brown brothers and sisters that are here today. I, like many of us, I'm light brown. I'm not white. I mean, I mean this, is, this is white, right? I'm not white. I'm just a little light on the melanin. You can say I'm melanin challenged, okay? But there's so many possibilities that could provide enough diversity in skin color and other physical characteristics within the gene pool to produce every type of person in the world today out of the sons of Noah. So the bottom line is, it doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't matter because when we're all one in Christ, physical distinctions are irrelevant. Amen? The third lesson from Babel is where these people groups ended up and this is fascinating even today traces of the table of nation people groups can be seen in the cities and the regions where they ended up and i'm going to give you a couple examples but answers in genesis has done amazing work on this showing where the people groups likely migrated and i'm going to send you a link this week by Bo, it's a talk by Bodie hodge that he did that's absolutely fascinating i'll give you a couple though that stand out of modern names that retain their ancient identity in Genesis 10, from the table of nations, we see the name Ashkenaz, which is the modern Hebrew name for Germany. And we also see Java is a modern Hebrew name for Greece, and Misram, or Misraim, is the modern Hebrew name for Egypt. Also, we see Rosh, which became, later became Russia. We see Meshach, that became Moscow. Many countries contained in their own genealogies connections back to the Table of Nations and back to the flood. For example, Chinese records describe Nuha with his three sons, Lohan, Loshan, and Jefu. 
according to the Miyazu people of China. I'm not making that up. I mean, that's remarkable. There are many more like this that bring the table of nations and the flood narrative alive with relevancy. The bottom line is this, that Genesis is not full of fairy tales. It is real history. And the history of these people groups that scattered should be treated with the same authenticity that we give a modern-day Israelite or even a Samaritan that we read about in the New Testament. Well, we've learned about, a lot about the Babel dispersion, about the, being the fountainhead of our different languages, being the fountainhead of our different people groups. But the fourth lesson from Babel is the heads up of a dark legacy of Babel that's still around today. Trying to do on a global scale the very thing that angered Yahweh in Babel. And like Babel, it's an arrogant movement. It's a monolithic movement. It's a unified movement. And it's a new age religious movement. And it has all the earmarks of the same cancer that Yahweh eradicated in northern Mesopotamia. The only difference is these modern groups, they're already making a global impact. Seeking to govern and dominate Every people group on the planet, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and the World Health Organization, you'll recognize some of these. But just realize, conspiracy theories aside, these are godless groups that seek to unify the world under one world government. They seek a corporate takeover of global governance that affects our food, affects our data, our vaccines, and our very lives. So what we have to understand is this is the spirit of Antichrist and this is the spirit of Babel. Instead of turning the people to Yahweh, they turn people to the wonderful and benevolent great God of government for their needs. So just be aware of the danger and make the connection back to where this collectivist governmental movement originated. Yahweh knew the danger of this brewing on the plains of Shinar and he broke it up for the good of mankind. The fifth lesson from Babel is understanding that Babel is just a bookend to what happened on the day of Pentecost, the other bookend. At Babel, the tongue of one people, which was understood, Yahweh then divided the tongues into dozens of tongues, which no one understood, bringing disunity and chaos. At Pentecost, the dozens of divided tongues which weren't understood, Yahweh translated so they could be understood, bringing what? Unity and clarity. The disunity of Babel is reversed by the unity at Pentecost. At Babel, Yahweh scattered the people for their good by His grace. At Pentecost, Yahweh gathered a people, His church, for their good by His grace. Finally, we've covered several lessons from Babel, but what is the big takeaway? What is the big so what of Babel? First, do we not see the grace of God in not annihilating Babel? Second, do we not see the danger of craving human praise, making a name for ourselves, exalting ourselves? Beware, because God does not make such strong men and women. God makes broken men and women. And He treasures those with a broken and contrite heart. For that is the heart He will not despise. And understand, there are only two religions in the world. One is the wide road, the religion of works, where man works their way to God as they tried to do in Babel. 
But all the while in those good works, man does not succeed in exalting God, but only succeeds in exalting himself. And if you're relying on your own good works, you will inevitably exalt yourself for those good works. The other religion is the narrow road, the religion of true faith, where man only relies on the good work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, for only he is to be exalted. The third takeaway, do we not see the danger of trying to find your peace and security with man instead of trying to find your peace and security with God? Just ask yourself, why is it that a man or woman of the world who's walking the wide road can find so much peace with their own sin, but they will go to war with you over losing the things of this world? But a man or woman of the Lord who's walking the narrow road will find no peace with their own sin, but they will find peace in losing what the world craves. If you're a believer, you know this battle with temptations, of the temptations of this world, because you wage it every day. It's a reminder for us to hold on loosely to the things of this world and a war against the sinful desires we have for man's praise and for the idol of security. If you're not a believer and God is convicting you of your destructive desires to make a name for yourself, and you're sick and tired of a shallow, self-focused life that's marked not by giving God glory, but giving yourself glory, understand that this grieves God, who alone is worthy to be praised. But also realize that although God is commanding you to stop with one hand, at the same time He is offering grace with the other hand. So I beg you, do not harden your heart. Instead, turn from the sin that vexes your soul. For it is a contrite heart that He does desire. A contrite heart that surrenders its love of self and turns from sin. For if your sin is unforgiven, you will be judged by that sin that you cling to. So I plead with you, raise a white flag of surrender and cling instead to the Savior and believe with everything you have in the only thing that will save you right now, and that's Jesus Christ. And He will. That's my cue to finish. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray and we'll have Noel come up. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word to show us the danger of strong, the strong people of Babel. And remind us daily, Lord, that we are weak men and women in need of a Savior. And if we be strong, Lord, may it be only in the Lord. And if there be any believers here this morning, I pray that you break their pride and you reveal their weakness and their sinfulness. You reveal that to them, and I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you, who is their only strong tower. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.